Welcome to Toothpaste, the podcast, the other side of dentistry. There are two sides to our great profession. On one side, we have financial independence and personal fulfillment. On the other side, we have financial hardship, depression, and burnout. Why do some dentists thrive in this profession and others struggle to get out of bed in the morning? That is exactly what we are trying to find out. We don't claim to have all the answers, but we talk to some really smart people that can give you some insights on how to thrive in dentistry and life. Thank you for listening. And now for our hosts, Dr. Jessica Gall and Dr. Vincent Buscemi. Well, welcome to Toothpaste, the podcast, episode 32. I have an old friend, a good friend, Ryan Kalkin, Notre Dame grad, twenty no, 2007. 2011 from Notre Dame, 2007 from Brother Rice High School here. Oh, you're young. 2011. Yeah. Wow. How old yeah. are you? Uh, I am 33. 33. Okay. Single? I am still single, yes. Okay. See that, ladies? We got a single guest on the <laughs> podcast. Um, let me start with a story of how I met Ryan. I won't say the location I worked in, but I worked in a lower income dental practice. And this young, handsome man walks in talking about going to Notre Dame betting on the grammys i think you were the the oscars yeah the oscars okay and you you stuck out like a sore thumb um he's a great guy so tell me where you're working now so uh, i i still work for general motors and uh, i was an engineer for eight years but in november i got recruited by the marketing department so okay now i am a product marketer for full-size suvs i'd be the tahoe in the suburban so do you miss being an engineer uh yeah it's just different um i I am actually uncomfortable for the first time in probably eight years in my career that's good so it was just like when i joined general motors it was a huge organization with a lot of experts okay and you're just drinking from a fire hose trying to understand how do we build cars and i had some great mentors and so now i'm on the marketing side it's a completely different way of thinking about things um, before I could test any sort of question I had with data, have laboratory results, uh, touch the parts. Here, I have just different kinds of data sets and it's more subjective questions and guesses and forecasting. And so um, it's an interesting challenge. Uh, I'm looking forward to it because this, this perspective, it's more customer focused. Uh, I will be the one cascading down the requirements to the engineers. And so I'm upstream of the process and I'm very excited by um, all the different projects we're going to get to work on. So it's different, different kind of problem solving, um, but it's a new experience. So I imagine you're moving more from objective thinking and engineering, like numbers and math, and then you're moving towards more human behavior analysis and marketing? It is. And so, and it, and now we're into the, so it's still big data sets, but it, it's the survey data sets, the ones that are a little bit tough to tease out, like what is the correlation here? What do people like? Uh, how do they answer the questions versus when I ask metal a question, are you going to break when I add this much force to metal is always telling me the truth. Tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. And I can, I can repeat the results quickly. It's, it takes much more time to repeat results and there's so many more variables with people. And so it's a little bit difficult to pick what, uh, what kind of features are they going to like on the vehicle? So what's harder engineering or marketing? Um, I would say, I would say engineering, I still find a little bit more challenging. Uh, okay. But it, it depends on the challenge you're given, right? Just trying to figure out why something broke, that's a little bit easier. Trying to invent something new, you get a requirement that we have to go state-of-the-art, that's harder. Um, every incremental 1% to be better than your competitors is far harder. It's an asymptotic curve. Yeah, so Ryan works for GM, but he's not a spokesman for GM. That's correct. Good. So, marketing, how are you getting us to buy cars that we can't afford? <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see. How do we... 
how do we get you to buy cards you can't afford? Well, you told me something interesting on the phone yesterday about yeah. putting a certain feature in a certain price car. Uh, yeah. So basically, the my specific job, if I could boil it down, is if you go onto the build your own website for any of the car companies, and you're trying to just say, this is the trim level that I want, these are the features that I want, I'm the guy that packages them for you. And if you're ever wondering, uh, hey, well, why? how come I have to go to the next level for a sunroof? Uh, I'm the guy that puts it there. Um, part of the reason is we know people will pay for it. It's a de- desirable feature. But then we also try and make it so we fill that package with other features that you wouldn't necessarily buy but you need, so it feels fuller. Okay. Um, for example, like why do you get french fries with every single sandwich you get at a restaurant? It's so the plate looks fuller. Um, we're trying to put features in there that are important, like... Um, GM is really big on safety these days. And so some safety features that we care about are um, bicycle alert when you're backing up. So you it'll beep or it'll stop the vehicle if it sees that a bike is coming with all the cameras. Okay. A customer is not going to pay for that because that doesn't truly benefit the customer. But it is an additional feature that builds out each of these packages and we think is important for uh, I feel like it kind of benefits you because it's... If you can avoid running someone over, it totally makes your day better. Totally, but when but when you're deciding, like, is that worth five dollars at the? I see what you're saying. When you're paying for a sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar vehicle, I guess you don't you won't care. Um, but these are the features we're trying to include in, and uh, they do make the driving experience better. These vehicles are so incredibly powerful with all the technology they get on them. Um, how do we get people to buy sixty, eighty thousand dollar cars? In general, the most affluent people buy them, and then they go back into the used car market, and that's when you're going to get them a couple years later. Oh, okay. So uh, I don't know if everybody buys an eighty thousand dollar car. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if you have an eighty thousand dollar car. I do not. You do not. Do you get a free car from GM, or do they? Get- uh, I get something. It's an interesting program. It's called a captured test fleet. And so before we release our vehicles to the public. Um, about 250 employees from General Motors get the saleable version of the vehicles, vehicles that are good enough to be on the roads, um, and then they'll be sold to auction after we're done. But we accumulate miles, and we have a data recorder inside them. So we're picking up all these different driving profiles from our internal customers, which would be me and other engineers. Uh, and as we drive, we're picking up data on the new features and trying to find bugs. Okay. So this is a last chance that we can pick up uh, experiences um, of uh, things that aren't working right or things that I'll notice, n- noises I hear, that's like, hey, this isn't right. I press the button, it goes to OnStar, and then we send the work ticket to the engineers to try and fix it before we go to production. So you get all these cars before the general public gets it? Yep. Kind of like a drug t- trial where like a 1,000 people get it, they grow a third testicle, and then they put it back <laughs> onto the market. Uh, it's, it, that's a very, very good analogy, yes. Uh, so I've had the privilege of driving a Mavier 23 before it came out on Monday. Okay. And it's been great. It, I've been driving the high country, which is the luxury version of the the Tahoe. Uh, it's got all the bells and whistles, about an eighty eighty five thousand dollars vehicle. Okay. And that thing rides like a dream. And it's a car that I couldn't personally afford, uh, but I've, it's been a treat to drive around in that. So then would you find yourself to be a representative sample of the people buying those cars? Not that you're not high class or high society, uh, but... Oh, so with regards to the actual product line, like a Tahoe, which is a three-row SUV, uh, I am one of the two major subsets. So single uh, single guys with good jobs. Okay. They usually have big vehicles like that for their outdoor activities, like throw my, my golf clubs in the back. Okay. The other person would be families that need a three-row car to 
carry around their kids, but they think minivans aren't cool. Okay. And so they'll pay the extra money. <laughs> I'm dead serious. No, I, I get it. Yep. Yeah. It, they will, uh, they, they want an SUV, a full-size SUV. It looks nicer. Uh, you don't look like you're driving a mobile. Yeah. And that's why people usually buy those fifty to $80,000 SUVs. I, I, I have a van. Um, it was like $57,000. So it wasn't, oh, man. yeah, Pacifica. Yeah. So, cause we bought it during the time where still used cars are super expensive. Yeah. And like the new car was like not that much more. In the last two years. During, yeah. Yeah. Like, I think we bought it six months ago, but I can see people spending 30 grand more to not drive a van. Yep. Do you know why? <laughs> Did you follow why the used car market exploded like that? I have no idea. Oh, so it's fascinating stuff. So during the, uh, do you have time for it? And do you want to hear We it? have all the time in the world, Ryan. Right. So the, the used car... <laughs> The used car explosion of 2020 uh, had a lot to do with the chip shortage stuff, obviously. Okay. So uh, all the car companies on the planet shut down. They all did it almost at the same time because they did not know when people were going to have enough money to buy these cars again. And so they just stopped. This caused the uh, chip suppliers to stop and or they rerouted all of their chips to PlayStations and other video game systems and Bitcoin miners. That's where the chips went. Okay. I had no idea. Yep. And so those contracts, when uh, they were done with the auto market, they moved to other customers, and then the auto market tried to turn them back on. Okay, so the auto market's producing like crazy, um, but there's not enough supply of cars because there's not enough supply of chips, and so there's certain customers that aren't getting uh, the vehicles they need, and that would be rental car fleets. So the rental car companies, they usually have rolling contracts every year. They get brand new cars. And so almost every time you go to Enterprise and National, you'll notice that the car is below 15,000 miles, if not brand new, because they're always getting brand new cars. After they're done for the year, they sell them to auction. Okay. But the rental car companies didn't know that they were going to get all of their contract worth of cars, right? So what do they do? They decide not to sell. They keep them. In fact, they need more cars. And so they start buying from the auction market. So you have an exact flip of somebody who's selling into a market. Now they're a buyer. And because of that, there's now double the demand inside the auction market. And that rose all the prices for used cars everywhere. Because the dealerships, they're like, oh, the auction house is like, the prices for getting anything in auction house is huge. I'm going to buy from everybody I can. And so every dealership was calling you saying, hey, can I buy your used car? And they're willing to pay you more than you uh, paid for it the year before. Yeah. And so that's what caused this run up on prices for like a year and why the used car market was just exploding. It was, oh, my gosh. It was the shortage of our, our supply. And then the demand absolutely flipped where everybody, the used car, used dealership, used car dealerships, the rental cars, and then people just trying to buy an affordable car were all buying for the same one car. The demand was skyrocketing and supply was super low. Yep. Um, well, Carvana, we sold our other van to Carvana for more than we paid for it two years later. Uh, and but did you do it just to get the lock in the price, or like you were planning to sell anyway? We're planning to sell. Anyway. Yeah, then congratulations, you you priced it. But the problem is the the car you're going to go buy was also really expensive. So, we're, so we didn't like save money on that deal, right? That's the same problem with just the housing market. You're just like, hey, well, you could sell, sure, but then you got to go buy an expensive. You house live right in your there. parents' basement until the market comes down. Right, right. Well, uh, let's go back to um, sure. this human behavior part, because because GM isn't really a customer facing aspect like a dental practice like i Correct. see my clients face it well of course i'm in their face work on their teeth how is gm other than surveys understanding what their clients want to put that into a car to sell it back to their clients oh uh, great question so gm sells to dealerships so dealerships are the boots on the ground um, there are separate entities independent contract or independent businesses that 
exclusively buy General Motors products. And so they're the ones who are the closest to their clientele. They usually give us the data. I have a sales team that talks with all of them, and they give us some of the demands. Um, they can tell. We populate all the data of uh, what is selling, what is hot. So we'll know if sunroofs are very, very good. Sunroofs are not universally uh, desired around the country. Do you know which part of the country do not want sunroofs? Michigan. Uh, Michigan, they do like sunroofs. Right. Like a little bit of sun. Okay. It tends to be the south. Anybody in the south, the the extra, when their cars are parked outside, it just makes their car hot. Okay. And so they tend to not have. Are you pro sunroof or anti sunroof? Uh, if it was well, like. If it was up to me, I would have a sunroof in every single car. Really? Uh, just standard. Okay. Um, but you would, and it would reduce complexity, so it would be less cost, less uh, effort for manufacturing plants. But we, we have both. One, so we can charge more for it. But two, some customers just don't want it. Okay. Other customers that don't want it are municipalities. So any sort of government, uh, they have contracts. They want the cheapest vehicle possible. Yeah, I don't think a police officer wants a sunroof in a... Yep, that's correct. <laughs> and so we do serve police officers with these vehicles. They're basically secret service vehicles, right? Sure. Um, so perfect. You get it. You could be product marketing tomorrow. I'm going to apply tomorrow. You should. Yeah. We got openings. <laughs> uh, the, so we have the previous sales data. That's pretty robust for understanding what features are working, especially the new ones. We watch some of the new features that we think are super cool. Are people enjoying them? Are they actually buying it? Um, but when we're starting a program, trying to predict what the next generation vehicle needs, we do focus groups. Okay. So um, I got to go to my first focus group uh, a couple months ago. It was awesome. And uh, the basic um, style was that we would have about – oh, maybe 100 people come in, and then there's a, a big warehouse that has uh, a bunch of vehicles from different competitors side by side by side. And then we're just highlighting different things about these vehicles that we want customers to grade on a scale of 1 to 10. And like, does the, do you like the way this looks? Uh, is this rugged enough? Some sort of word that we're trying to push. Okay. Well, who, who's looking for rugged? I don't, I don't know. Okay. I, I mean, the, the one of the words we were interested in was uh, craftsmanship. What does craftsmanship mean to you? Okay, like high quality? Uh, I mean, that could be. That, okay. So that's your association, the whatever word association you say first. Some people think premium, some people think, uh, so high quality is a good one. Some people think uh, technology. Okay. Uh, depending on whatever the the word bubble is, those clouds of uh, brainstorming, we, we try and process that, and that usually helps with ad campaigns or figuring out how to target customers. So in these focus groups, are you behind like this two-way or one-way glass? Uh, yes. You're coughing. They're like, who's behind that glass? Yep. So the, <laughs> so the first day, the first session, the 100 uh, people, they come in, they're walking around the room, and then all of the brand labels are like covered up, so the customer doesn't know which vehicle that we have. Okay. And then they're just trying to compare and contrast. Out of those hundred customers, we take uh, maybe the top twenty-four people, and they're put into four focus group rooms around uh, a square table behind the uh, one-way glass. But today, we don't need the one-way glass. I watched it over a Teams meeting. Oh, you're so at home. I was at home in your underwear, and my underwear was about fifty other uh, uh, marketing people all watching the same. I thought you were going to say you're at home with fifty other cats. For nope. some reason, I thought that was going to come out. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at the cats. I am not a cat lady. <laughs> Yet. Uh, the No, so we're all on the calls. We're just IMing, trying yeah. to, oh, we didn't get that insight. There's some moderator who is very, very good at asking questions empathetically okay. to not kill the conversation. And so she just keeps asking, tell me more about that. And you'll have uh, the different personalities speak up and give their opinion on different features, different words, different, does this look good? Why doesn't it look good? 
you always have one personality in those uh, rooms where he just talks too much or he always has something to say. Like the, there's a person you bring in who has too much to say. Well, we, well, we didn't mean to. I mean, yeah, I just, mean, it just happens. Right, and so the moderator has to be very deft at trying to like, hey, we're going to yeah. give them What are they saying? They're just talking to the talk? They just, well, yeah, it's just like that guy at the end of the bar who just, always, yeah. who just runs his mouth, right, and just likes to hear himself talk. But <laughs> it's okay. They, they, they love their vehicles. We're getting some insight. It's just yeah. we want to hear from everybody because I – Everyone was sort of picked based on their sort of demographic that the and then um, based on those insights, we pick some of our favorite, the ones who are most interesting or unique, and we'll go out to their homes. We'll be there for several days or several hours, and so I got to meet people personally who are some are GM customers, some are Ford customers, some others. Yeah. And uh, what are you doing at their house? We we tell them ahead of time. We ask them like, hey, can we come over and interview the, you for a couple hours? See where you live. See what your lifestyle is. See the vehicle that you have. And what's inside? What's the mess inside your vehicle? What yeah. are you doing day to day? And we can have them talk about it. And people love talking or complaining about the things they don't like on their vehicle. And I'm there with a notepad scribbling uh, incessantly every little detail that I can pick up because it's a real person. And then yeah. they'll tell you just like, this is bad quality uh, um, carpeting. This doesn't match the color. I, it's impossible to clean these cup holders. Like having a mom tell you how hard it is to clean these different nooks and crannies, that's something that. I do not personally know as a 33-year-old single guy. Yeah. But I want to make a better product. And then you bring that back to who do you bring that back to then? So I'll bring that so I'll bring all of this feedback so I've got the subjective data and then we've got the objective data from the surveys. We're also running online surveys that calculate a lot, a lot of AB comparisons. And so we'll figure out how different features rank like uh I don't know. When we're talking about audio systems, speaker systems, we'll figure out which brands people prefer over others. How many speakers people like? Um, do they would they pay more for a high quality speaker system, or is is just canceling out the road noise good enough? So let me ask you this: Are people paying more for high quality sound system? Because I don't even know how many speakers are in my van. Um, well, let's see. So w typically. The name brand does matter for some people. Really? Uh, I don't even know what name brand mine is. So, like, what we have on ours is Bose. And Bose, so people okay. recognize Bose. Um, the, I think Cadillac has a much more, like, a studio-level brand. I'm not familiar with them too much. I'm not a big music guy, so sure. it doesn't matter to me. But uh, the, the Jeep Grand Wagoneer is a very nice, I think their brand is, like, something like McLaren. Um, I, don't, okay. I don't remember the name. It's not McLaren, not the hospital system, but some uh, some elite uh, studio sound kind of st uh, stereo system. And it does matter, I think. It, when you just hear your podcast or your music just a little bit clearer, or maybe you want to roll down the street and just light up the neighborhood yeah. with, with your beats, uh, maybe that matters to you. Um, people do pay for it. People pay for a lot of things. So I, what I'm dying to ask you is, with all this objective research, what are people willing to pay for? <clears throat> And what are people not willing to pay for? It seems like nobody's willing to pay for that sensor that prevents you from running a kid over on his bike, but they're willing to pay for better music. Yes. Um, so people like the idea of safety, but... Uh, they're not going to pay for it. In, is that, is well, that just human nature? Well, it's human nature because you think you're, you're safer driving than everybody else. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I do think that, but I'm sure you think that too. I, yes. Um, but 
any most people like creature comforts, and so if you've ever had a heated seat or heated steering wheel, okay, you tend to not ever like let go of that. You're like, oh, I'm never going back. Like it's too nice. Yeah. And so they'll keep those kind of features, and we know that. We know that they. And that's across the board, all demographics. I want something that makes me comfortable. Uh, not all demographics. A lot of people are just like, no, I, I uh, if they're if they're a younger parent, they're usually cost conscious, and they're just like, I just need this to get carry my kids. I just yeah. need this to go where I need to go. Um, and then our premium customers, the ones at the top end, like that high country, for example, that tends to be a customer who's just like, it doesn't matter what it costs. So we, they'll, they'll get all the bells and whistles. The price is fine. Um, but they just don't want to buy a Cadillac. They'll buy a Chevy. They like to be a Chevy person. Okay. So what level of income is this high, highfalutin customer that you have? Uh, uh, that level of income tends to be in the 200k owns a business. Okay. If they can afford a boat, uh, they, they tend to be the high country customers. Okay. Yep. So the, the base level or the LT customer, so that's the second uh, highest. That's about me. Uh, somebody who has a, a good job at a corporation and then just wants to drive a reliable quality car. Okay. Um, still it would be, it's a little bit more price that I want to pay. I just don't want to pay that much for a car, like having a used car. Yeah. But uh, that, I'm kind of the target demographic, the middle 30s single guy for my for my low-end vehicle. Okay, but I imagine that the, the high-income earners aren't GM's, like, main target. Is that who they're trying to go after to buy cars, or they're trying to go after everyone? Uh, so GM's definitely trying to be as many customers served as possible. Okay. But, but we're, we do want to go after... Uh, high income customers, but GM's bread and butter is the, the full size truck, the big vehicles. Sure. We do that much better than the coupes. We have a sports car. I mean, the Corvette is, and, uh, is one of our flagship products. It also makes a lot of money, but we're trying to increase our transaction price, uh, our contribution margin, how much we, we make per car, uh, just like everybody else. Um, is, are some cars more profitable than other cars? 100%. Okay. Uh, the company's trying to get a 10% EBITDA uh, for the year, and that'd be great for a car company. Um, but some cars can get anywhere from 25 to 45% margin. Really? Yeah. I, th- I don't know if this is true, but I heard this somewhere that the average of like all businesses EBITDA is like 3%. That sounds right. So, so they have the, like... Is that including losses, like losers? Probably. I, I don't know. I are, just, are you talking about the like S&P 500 or what? You, well, every... Business. No, actually, it's small business. So, oh. like, yeah, I should say so. Like a grocery store would be super lucky to yep. get three percent. Well, yeah, that's a that's a high margin. Yeah, that's a really tight margin business. Yeah, You're throwing away a lot of produce every time. Yeah, yeah, that one's tight. Um, car companies um, they have high margin sometimes, um, but it's a high moat business. Like it's so hard to get into those things. You're competing against. GMs and Fords have been around for a hundred years, and they get bailouts. Uh, yep, and then they they do, but they. They supply 150,000 jobs. Uh, that's how many people work for GM right now. But then all of the other businesses that are tied to it, they, they need the central business to flow the money out. Like GM sends out a lot of money every single day that, uh, to buy all these parts, and then we get the revenue back in. Yeah. Um, I'm pro-GM if your GM's listening. <laughs> and so is Ryan pro-GM. No, I, I, absolutely. I think it's an integral part of the... Well, it's running the state. I mean, like, of course, we're the, the we're the Motor City. Yeah, and and then we we make good products. You I do mean, at the beginning of the '90s when when there was a, a stigma that that Honda and Toyota were the the higher quality products. I mean, that might have been valid and got it made the American car companies work better to make higher quality. Now we're much better quality, um, and I'm pretty proud of our products. Yeah, and the, the fact that we're 
so focused on safety and then getting into electrification and autonomous. Um, it's an exciting time, and we're going to make good ones. Um, but uh, we're, we're just we're trying to make as much money as we can to transition into the electric future. Okay. Stay robust. Because the electric future, we don't know. The toughest part isn't if it's going to happen. It's just the when. You want to time it right. Yeah. And no one knows that. We'll see what happens. So I find it interesting that you find your customers aren't paying for safety, but then you're so focused on safety. Right. Are you just like baking that back into the product and then the creature comforts come after? So I'm going to divide a customer experience into two phases. One is the the day they buy it on the dealership lot. So all the things that you want to see. So customers love seeing the big screens. They like seeing the tech. They imagine themselves enjoying this vehicle. And then once you have it, uh, is the customer going to enjoy their vehicle every single day or are there just going to be things that bug them? And so once you're driving it every day and you realize some of these safety features and how well they work, then you're like, oh, this is great. And those are the things you tend to talk about with all your friends. It's like, you know, I got a new car the other day, and it does this one thing that's just awesome. That's what we kind of want. We want every one of our customers to be a walking billboard. And safety tends to be something they talk about later. But in the dealership, it's not what people go in. They, they want to see five-star rating. Yeah. But I don't think they know it until they actually experience on a day-to-day drive. Well, I think that's a good point. A lot of dentists listen to this, six of them. Um, my mom listens to Schneider Dentist. Sure. But there's two experiences for every customer. There's the day of, and then there's when you go home, like, and the, all the buzz wears off. Oh, yeah. Are you actually enjoying the car? Or are your teeth feeling okay right. three months later? Right. Okay. That's that's a good analogy. I never thought of it that way. That's exactly right. Like. Because if I had a bad experience with my dentist and my tooth is like hurting when it's supposed to not hurt, I wouldn't go back. I'd yeah. Have experience. So I guess when you buy a car, if it's like, wow, this car, the screens are huge. Uh-huh. But then three months later, the axle breaks. Right. You're like, okay, this was a terrible experience. Uh, right. And now you've got that customer. So we, we have a big fear inside the big car companies that if we piss off a customer these days, um, customers are much more vocal on social media. Yes. So that one customer who would have just poisoned the well in their neighborhood, like, hey, this is a lemon, don't buy that product, they can now disseminate that information with videos across the internet very, very quickly. Yeah. So if there's a, uh, a noise that absolutely annoys you and you just take a video of it, it'll go fast and then uh, usually a social media team will come and gobble that up and try and fix that problem as soon as possible. So uh, quality is even more important today than it used to be. That's so true. So do you have a reputation management like section in your company where like people are posting bad reviews about you guys to handle that? Uh, we do have parts of the company that are combing Facebook and the other uh, social media to hear and figure out those things. Okay. Um, I don't think we do it for every single response, but if the responses blow up, you're like, uh, hey, this, this noise is a real thing. It's, yeah. it's a way... To it's instead of just going to your dealership, if the dealership's not helping you, you've now talked to the actual company. We do respond, not to everything. Sure, we can't respond to everything. No, and then one of the biggest complaints that customers have is just dealing with the the center console infotainment, and hey, it doesn't plug into my phone. It's really hard for us to figure that out because a lot of the time it's just the phone is either too hot or the cord's not working or it's not a standard cord. It's really difficult to figure those out, and those are kind of confusing, and those tend to be a lot of customer uh, usage issues. Yeah. Or, Maybe Apple and Android aren't as good as you think you are, but you blame the car. You'll never blame and- Apple. No. Right. So that's so crazy because dentists and doctors I talked to had the same fear. Because I can work on a patient, mm-hmm. everything goes right, mm-hmm. and they leave a bad review anyway. And then now I can't even defend myself. Yeah. So what's the, uh, what's the ratio of uh, an acceptable 
positive review, negative review for, for a dentist or a doctor? Like if a YouTube video, I'm always assuming that the thumbs up are like 5 to 10% on the number of views. Ideally, you have like a 4.9 rating on Google. So you have like 100 five-star reviews. Okay. Staying and above four is good. If you're like even just like four, it's not good. You have to be as close to five as possible. Okay. Are you, uh, are you, do you use ZocDoc or what's the, what is the uh, um, rating service that you prefer? Google reviews. Okay. Because Google. Google marketing is the best way to get new patients. So Google reviews help your marketing. Got it. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a good point. When I'm just searching for a dentist, it's like, all right, who's the dentist in my area? Yeah. Okay. So I just heard this yesterday that Google is the highest search engine, which I knew, but I didn't know that the second most used one is YouTube, which is owned by Google. Oh. So Google dominates all of the searches for any company. That, that makes sense. What, um, do you, just YouTube in general or YouTube for dentists? No, YouTube in general. Okay, okay. So if I look up like how to drive my car faster or yes. something, I go to Google or I go to YouTube. Right. That makes sense. I Learning those like home hacks, I, I just assume... Somebody's already solved this problem that I've seen. I just yeah, and they have yeah, but then they have an ebook if you pay twenty nine ninety nine, they can <laughs> right. charge you over right. So, are you enjoying the human behavior part? Do you ever find frustration that sometimes people give you feedback, but it's not really how they feel? Uh, yeah, that's I'm I'm skeptical of certain things that people are saying that they want, and then uh when we actually give it to them it's not what they wanted or what one thing they don't understand is obviously engineering isn't about giving you everything it's about trade-offs okay so you can't do everything that the vehicle has physical limitations or and it's cost because if if you want all of these features but you want it to be in the cheapest package possible i can't do that impossible it's impossible right and so one of the things that's on my vehicle that's a tough trade-off that i can't really explain to customers is that we decided in the rear suspension to give you an independent suspension. So this is the best ride quality we can give you for a boat of a vehicle. Okay. But the customers are complaining about cargo space in the rear. It doesn't have all those hidden compartments. I can't give you both, right? Because yeah. I took up all those hidden compartments to give you the best ride you can get. And the reason I did it is that I think 99% of the customers are going to enjoy a good ride and maybe only 20% of customers are ever going to use that car. Now, how do you know that? Were you asking people? Uh, like, that's a tough decision to make because they don't know what – I don't even know what an independent suspension is. Right. It's not something you're supposed to know. In yeah. fact, the, if you know it's there, that's a problem, right? It, it's just a smooth ride. Yeah. And it feels like you're always just riding on glass. And the absence of you noticing it is the feature. It's not a bug. It's great. Yeah. Uh, you're paying for it, and then you don't have the extra cargo space. When you get like, oh, extra cargo space, this is really cool. Yeah, you remember that and you like to show people and talk about it. But when you're showing people your car, in general, you're not showing them the independent suspension. You can't like describe that experience to them. Do they, do people know that it's smoother so they have less cargo space? So JD Power and all those other surveys, they can, they can ask what is the ride quality. And then usually ride quality comes out of negative reviews. So how many negative reviews you have? And we just have a lack of negative reviews in that feature. Okay. Um, so it, people don't rave about it on the reviews of the first thing they think of, but it's definitely not something that comes up on their negative reviews. And so that's how we discern that we're doing a pretty good job there. Uh, I'm trying to maintain best in class ride quality um, just because I think that's something pe- customers enjoy. And the second you take it away, yeah, they know. If, if it, they will know, and then they'll be very dissatisfied. So you're thinking that through all your research that ride quality is trumping cargo space, and then the company GM just makes a decision: we're go- we're doing ride quality. Yep. We're going to reduce cargo space. Yep. 
We're not even going to ask our customers. We just know this is the case. We, again, we ask them. Yeah. But it's just not a data point. They'll either, they could hear like, hey, do you want ride quality? Of course they do. Yeah. They'll all say that. Um, but when they do the trade-offs, it doesn't come out that way. Um, but for that feature, we decided to um, optimize so there's least regret, right? As okay. opposed to optimizing. Least regret for, for who? Uh, for the customer. If okay. We, if we take it away, there's I mean, there's two kinds of utilitarian uh, philosophies. One is the most pleasure, and one is the least regret. Okay. So how do you want to live your life? Uh, if you live with the least regrets, that's pretty good. Then you, you didn't get disappointed. You did everything you wanted to do. Or you could try and have the most adventurous life possible, but you might not achieve it. Um, so that's what we had to pick and choose. I don't have a formula for it. That was just the decision for the ride suspension that I thought the benefit of chasing the high of better, more cargo space, more nooks and crannies was not as worth it as the potential downside of most regret. Okay. That's like my personality in like two sentences. I would strive for personally less regret mm -hmm. than more pleasure. Is that your personality as well? Um, I try, I chase novelty a lot. You do. I do chase novelty quite a bit, but then, um, but I, I'm trying to shift. I think everyone had that existential crisis during the pandemic of like, what are you doing this all for? What's the most important thing to you? And I was just like, all right, I, I've always wanted to sail around the world and go surfing. Okay. And I, those are my dreams. This is the reason I work. This is the reason I make a little bit extra money. I wanted to do those things, and I've never taken a lesson for either. Okay. All right, and so then what the hell are you doing with your life? And then I was like, all right, I'm going to go do one of these things. And so one day I booked um, a, an Airbnb in Hawaii on Honolulu and for a whole month. No way. Yep. When was this? That was um, that was 21. It was July 4th of 21, so I was there for a month, all of July. Oh, about a year ago. It was last year. Okay. And that was some of the happiest times of my life. It was right in between a couple of builds at some of the plants. Okay. So I knew my schedule. Uh, I worked every day and didn't take a single vac vacation day. So I worked every day for General Motors. So I was an automotive engineer in Hawaii, six hours off. And I would call in at midnight and I would go to bed at, or, and I would close the laptop at 9 a.m. And so then I had all of the day to just do activities in Hawaii. Wait, explain that again. So you would log in at midnight. Yep, midnight. You would work from midnight to 9 a.m. That's correct. When would you sleep? So I slept at about 5, 6 p.m. every day. And then you woke, oh, wow, so you're going to bed at 6 p.m. Waking up at midnight. Yep. So are you having, when are you having dinner? Are you like, is your social life crap? Well, to... so it was in the pandemic, so social life wasn't great. Was Hawaii pretty closed down too? Uh, it was, it, so it was very, very difficult to get on. You have to go through all these hoops. Okay. And then... It, uh, people were taking it seriously because it's an island. They they're they're very much like all in this together. Okay. Um, every restaurant you went into, you had to sign a contact tracing form in case there was an outbreak. Um, you had to wear a mask walking from the door to the restaurant. But everyone's outside. It's really sunny, so okay. not everyone was wearing masks outside or anything like that. I just closed the laptop down, got all the work I needed to do, and I would either go surf, I'd go jog, I would go walk to the grocery store, get a new pineapple. Uh, it and get fish tacos, but I didn't go to the bars because there just wasn't people going out to the bars. The bars were yeah. open until 10 o'clock anyway. I just focused on what does it feel like to live in Hawaii. So why was it one of the happiest times of your life? Uh, just because I, it was a paradigm shift to have like eight hours of sunlight to do whatever you wanted. Okay. And so I felt healthy. Uh, I had this dream of surfing. And then I just enjoyed the process of it. I don't like doing yoga. Okay. Uh, yoga feels good. It's definitely something good to do, but I don't quite like the spiritual mumbo jumbo of it. 
However, if my surf instructor said the exact same thing for some reason on the ocean, I, it responds better to me. So uh, was that your first time surfing? Yeah. So that is novelty. So It was. And, yeah. then, and then I just kept going out there and trying to get better and better. It's just like learning how to golf where you kind of stink at the beginning. Uh, if you're trying to learn how to golf, you can't hit the ball every time. I can't hit a wave every time. Okay. But I don't mind the getting up and trying again. If you like that grind, that process, getting better every day. Yeah. I enjoyed it on the ocean. Um, and it, it clears my head. So as an engineer, I kind of, my brain's kind of running all the time. And I have just this anxiety of uh, all the things that are going on and all the things I could be doing. When you're out in the ocean, afraid of drowning, your mind just is clear. And I just enjoy floating, waiting for the wave to come every couple minutes. You, you kind of don't have the luxury to worry because your thought is like, I have to stay on this board. Yep. I can't drown. Yep. You're not worried about like something you said three weeks ago to a coworker. Exactly. All of those little things that just do not matter. They yeah. do wash away for that one hour that I'm on the board. And... Uh, I enjoyed that. I just enjoyed that experience. Um, and I, I, I wondered, like, are, are we doing this work thing wrong? Like, I think we are. So uh, for your business, I think you do need to be awake during the daytime. But I kind of wish everybody else in society would work at night, this midnight to 9 a.m. that I did. And so then I could just go get my dentist appointment during the day. Yeah. When it's sunny out. Uh, I know why we do it. We are, we're an agrarian society, and we have kids that don't want to wake up at midnight. Uh, I don't know how you could, if you could get your kids to be on a... They're up at midnight, but not because they're productive, because <laughs> they're crying and shit in their pants. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so that's wild. So when I look at this, I think like you're getting a lot of sun. Your diet's probably better. It's fundamentally better. I was eating fresh. I was making for myself, because yeah. I had time to cook, too. I wasn't like getting fast food or anything. Yeah. I, is I, there even fast food on island? Oh, uh, yeah. There, yeah, there there's, is. There's okay. some franchises. I've never been to Hawaii. Uh, I recommend it. And then you're getting exercise. Yeah. But I think the vital component, which I get from this podcast and you probably got from surfing, is that you're focused on one thing yeah. that you're passionate about and it gives the rest of your brain a break. Right. So I'm going to say there's one other thing that I think that was different is that I was I had a little bit of autonomy. I was trying to take control of my life rather than letting life sort of happen. Right. Okay. When you're waiting around for something, just trying to get through the pandemic. I don't know. You just kind of you're you're floating around. You don't feel good. Here it's like I'm making an active decision to live my life to try and achieve something, and so that felt good too. It's like in Hawaii, had high expectations, and it was working out great. And you're right. I was also focusing on only a few things. Yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't have any of the um, the extra chores of life that build up when you're in town. Like you have all these relationships, you have all these commitments. I was in a place for a significant period of time where I got to start fresh. I was the same person but not the same environment. And uh, I just focused on self-care, surfing, working every day. So I uh, didn't get fired. I did yeah. all the work I needed Did your to work do. know you were in Hawaii? Uh, it was one of those. Oh, should my we not say that in the podcast? Uh, well, no. My, I mean, the rules are you can work appropriately. Okay. Uh, I, I cleared it with my manager. He knew, sent, sent the form. And then I did support the builds until I flew back and was at the builds. Okay. So everything went successfully. It's just, you don't brag about it uh, at the time because you don't, the people who have to work in the plant, they don't have. They don't want to luxury. know you're in Hawaii, right? And you, just, you don't want that perception uh, to to take you down a peg that oh he's not working, he's he's on vacation. Exactly. Um, just work appropriately. Uh, everyone's got their own situation. I don't really care that other people are in their lake houses who are more affluent than me. I mean, they're just living their life too. We all have our different struggles, but just get your work done. We're all one team. So I find that one of the things that makes humans happy is also social connections. Yeah. Did you find in Hawaii you were ever lonely? Uh, so I got fortunate that a 
one buddy of mine from college, he has been on the island for four years as a doctor, and he hasn't seen any of our college friends in eight years. I just, I knew he was a, a surgeon on Hawaii. I was like, just text him. Are, are you here? He's like, oh, Culkin. And uh, he and his girlfriend were on doctor schedules. And so they also got off at like nine o'clock sometimes. So I went out surfing with him a couple times. Okay. Uh, we, we watched uh, the Olympics while we were over there. And then his, uh, his girlfriend was a hiker and she took me out hiking. So I had just enough social interaction um, to keep me sane. But it was nice to have also a little bit of a monastic lifestyle just to focus on myself. Um, so I got the best of both worlds. If it would have been a whole month with no new friends, that would probably have been a problem. I think so, too. I think also if you're so isolated for one full month, like yeah. you're only talking to yourself. Yep. And it gets real boring and actually depressing. Uh, yes. And then the, the rest of the world's on a completely different schedule. Like being six hours off of time is a little bit weird. Yeah. Uh, Did you find that it was any escapism when you were there? Like you were escaping other problems? And then when you came back to, I almost said America, when you came back to Michigan, like some problems resurfaced in your life? Oh, uh, well, yeah. Because when I was out there, I wasn't thinking about, do I need to achieve something? Okay. Uh, I was just focused on the here and now. Isn't that so funny that like, the, pr- the pursuit of not achieving something made you happier than actually achieving something? Right. That I that I need to get promoted or I need to be a master of something. Uh, okay. Or I need to keep progressing towards some goal. I, I don't really know what that is. Like, uh, we we both got good educations and we think that was going to make us conquerors of the world. Yeah. Uh, That's the complete opposite. <laughs> well, it, it, but then you just, you get through it now or 10, 15 years later and you're like, yeah, I, being pretty good would just be great. Yeah. Um, uh, having, having um, control over your life and not letting, not having the world take you into each direction, um, having those decisions. I mean, that's that's a luxury that I'm trying to create. Um, my dad had to retire during the pandemic. Okay, and they, he's kind of run out of projects to do, and so this make me reassess that, like a 60 year old doctor who's definitely still sharp enough to do whatever he wants. He's a uh, uh, he's at home, and I don't quite want to be that when I'm 60. So I'm trying to figure out how can I set up my life so I have a job or a project that no one can kick me out of when yeah. I'm 60. You're you're starting your own business. Uh, you've got your own side hustles. I think you're going to be set up well when you get to that time. It's like you don't want to work the full job anymore, but you're still going to have something that takes up your time for 20, 30 hours a week. I think you have to. I think you have to have your mind on something. Like yeah. You'll go nuts. So my fear is becoming the... Uh, the golfer or the fisherman who's drinking a bottle of whiskey every day. Because you have nothing then, to do. Well, yeah, and then my mind just goes. And then that's when I think you lose your memory, use your facility. Um, you need the social interactions that keeps you connected to the world, but you need a project that keeps you competing. Even if it's not... Uh, probably the best example of all my friends is some uh, some parents who used to have me to their lake house, Lake the Ozarks, every year. That was our co- post-college tradition. And they own a bunch of real estate uh, like strip malls in Omaha, and they're the sharpest people I know, and they, they're just never going to stop competing. They are just on. Yeah. And I think that's the secret. I think it's just having something and thinking the world is going to try and crush your business, even though they're going to be fine, and it keeps you lively. I think you have to have some sort of a fight. Yep. You have to be, not that there's an enemy, but there's a challenge you're constantly overcoming. Exactly. Because as soon as that challenge is removed, like you get soft, you get weak, your brain gets soft. Yes, and... That's that is a new fear I have, and so now I've got. To, I'm trying to engineer my life to get me to a place where I I will have the challenge that I want. Okay. And something that I can compete in every day, and no one can take away from me. So did your dad's 
I don't want to say forced retirement, but did your dad's retirement give you that fear, or was it yeah. something in Hawaii that triggered nope, it? Nope. So it's a, that was a, that was just seeing what was going on with uh, my dad. And the the Hawaii was just the idea. If I made enough money, what would I go do? Okay. And that was the uh, that was the the fantasy of just like if you had infinite time, you could just go do this. Could I? What would being a surf bum be like? But I wanted to do that before I was sixty. Yeah, exactly. When I was younger. <laughs> uh, uh, do you want to go live on the coast? I could, I could live in Hawaii. Uh, I don't know if it's smart to live there all year round. Okay. Um, one, I was on Oahu, which is where Honolulu is. It's only twenty five miles by thirty five miles. So like, if you wanted to just go drive, just to get away from it all, like in four hours you just drove around the entire island. So does everybody know everybody on that island? I I, I couldn't say that. But sure. It's there's just not anywhere to go. It's all there's like maybe two different kind of big areas. Okay. It all kind of looks the same. Um, I think you would get island fever uh, very quickly. Uh, the best possible scenario, I think, would be, for me, would be a pet-a-terre. You ever heard of that term? It's like second house. Europeans have it. Say that word again. Pet-a-terre. Pet-a-terre. pet a terre Okay. So the the concept of a second house, uh, Michiganders do it. It's the, the house up north. Yeah. Right? Um, but this idea would be more of... Maybe I live in a primary residence for nine months out of the year, and then I have my second house for three months out of the year. And so if I could live in Hawaii for three months out of the year, that'd be great. Or maybe uh, every quarter, I just move around the globe, and I have like my four places that I want to go to. Okay. Uh, I visited uh, Portugal this past year, uh, November. I went and hung out in Portugal, west side of Europe. Okay. So uh, I stayed with my buddy in London for three weeks, but then I went down to Portugal to go surf. Loved Portugal. That place is great. So, are you still surfing now? Does Michigan even have surfing um, spots? Not, not all year round. The okay. Great Lakes, you could surf. There's a lot of stand-up surfing on, uh, like by Gross Point and uh, Saint Clair Shores. What's stand-up surfing? Um, big boards, and then you have like a paddle board. Oh, you have okay. A paddle that's long enough. Yeah. And you just kind of stroke, and you just glide along. It's not the same as catching a wave. Okay. Is it less exciting? Uh, I, I just haven't done it, so okay. I, don't, I don't have experience for it. It's, it's I'm not attracted to it. I haven't tried it. I uh, I want to try and catch the wave. It's like conquering nature. Yeah. Um, I I'm looking at uh, I, I'm trying to sign up for some surfing in Toronto. I'm going to go up to the Toronto Film Festival like I do every year. Okay. That's, that's in the middle of September, and so Toronto is on a Great Lake just like Michigan, but they have just the conditions for some waves. Toronto does not strike me as the hot surf spot in nope. North nope. America. Uh, there, yeah, and then uh, like. I've looked at Duluth, uh, Minnesota. Get out of here. In the surfing there. In the winter. What? Yeah. So those guys surf when there's snow on the ground. Okay. And there's just a little pocket of some surfing there, but it's not a lot. Uh, okay. If you want to get the surfing, West Coast is by far the best place to go. So is surfing starting to be a main component of your life? Uh, I bring my suit everywhere I drive to. Okay. Uh, and then on the coasts, like when I'm going to friends or friends' weddings, I try and integrate as best I can. So I did it in... Uh, Manchester by the sea for a wedding. So it was the Gloucester area where they filmed Jaws. Yep. I went out and surfed there, did Rhode Island surf there, Myrtle Beach, Charleston. Um, I, I have been trying to do it. I did it out in Portland. I was in Portland for July 4th, and I uh, went out four days, um, surfed by myself. It was choppy, but it was good. So what is surfing doing for you? Is it the pure fact where your brain can forget about everything else? Is it the exercise? Or what about it drives you to surf more? Uh, so it is. It is the clearing of. Uh, it is clearing my head. Okay. It is some of the exercises. It's a light exercise. I love the water. I just love salt water. I don't okay. know about you. 
Um, it's just like going on a golf course. If you just like being outside and walking the course, being in nature, but it's easy. I, surfing's a very simple corollary. Um, but I don't want to jog. I don't love jogging. This yeah. is a different kind of aerobic activity that I just prefer. Okay. Um, and then I, uh, I find it exciting. It's just a little bit different. Um, and I can just be by myself. So yeah, those are all the things that kind of attract me. And I, I wish I could live closer to a beach. Yeah. Uh, are know. there other GM employees that live permanently somewhere else other than? Yeah. Okay. More and more of those things are happening. Um, a, cu- a couple, because their spouses have jobs other places, but GM doesn't want to lose them. Yeah. You can work remotely. And then we engineer their job to not have to have them on campus or that we fly them back. You just have to have it prearranged. So some people in Florida, some people in Colorado. Um, it's not the norm. Um but th- there are some occasions, yes. Okay. It sounds like we're very similar in terms of you're trying to live the good life. Like, you are worried about making money and being productive and being successful, but you're also, like me, you're more worried about at the end of your life looking back and saying, was that worth it? Yep. D- well, did I live the best life I could? Yeah. Um, do you care about legacy? That's that's one. There's, there's the spend the money now. Yeah. Or there's actually, like, carrying on... Uh, beyond you do you care about that deeply and it wasn't probably until two three years ago i started really caring about legacy and it's not like i don't want to leave 20 million in my bank account i used to think that way if i don't leave 20 million like i have no legacy yeah it's more like i want to maybe this sounds arrogant but i want to live in like the hearts and minds of my kids and family Mm -hmm. where when i die they look back and think like wow he really cared for us he really did his best yep that's the legacy i'm constantly thinking about okay and so you're talking about just the the impact uh, that you have on the actual people's lives on their on their yeah. souls, yep. yeah. Yep, uh, that's definitely good, and you should do that. Uh, I I'm trying to live the best life I can now, and but I do want kids. I think it's just a good life experience to have. Yeah, um, one of the most basic ones, and one of the most rewarding. Um, I haven't decided how much I care about leaving money into the future. I, I do have some friends. Some of my wealthier friends do think that way. Okay. And they live their life of, I inherited this much money from my parents. Let's say it's $5 million. So for every one of their kids, they're promising to leave them $5 million. So if they have three kids, they their goal in their life is to multiply their money so their kids are set up at the same level, if not better. Okay. And that's how their legacy is going to go forward. And that changes the way they live their life completely. Yeah. Um, it, that is a way to create like a generational wealth, a yeah. generational class. Um, I guess I would ask those people, and I'm not knocking that at all, because if I had $5 million, I'd love to give $5 million to each kid. I guess I would like to ask them, though, like, if your kids have $5 millions, but they have no self-esteem, no real skills, did you actually help them? Uh, you're correct. Uh, is that going to, co- right, is that necessarily going to happen? I mean, they're, they're good parents. And yeah, I'm sure they are. Well, and then by inheriting the $5 million, they're not using it to party. I mean, they just basically park that in a some sort of trust fund or some sort of account, and it's just generating money or it's in businesses. Okay. They still live a pretty humble lifestyle. Sure. And they're trying to be there for their family, big on their family. Yeah. And again... You have to be if you're going to give them that much money, and you care about investments. You invest in your kids, exactly. smart, f- whole people who enjoy their life. You don't want to give an unhappy person money. It's not going to make them happy. Yeah, um, and you always hear that generational wealth actually after three generations is gone. Uh, why would you say that? Th- that's actually a fact. Oh, really? Because almost like because like grandpa works really hard. He made twenty million. 
dad didn't work as hard. He spent 10 of that million. Grandson's a shithead. He spent the other 10. Yeah. Now great-grandson has nothing. Yeah. Then it starts over. Now he has to climb up from the bottom. Uh, I I believe in the concept that uh, you sh- it is better to... to uh, it, it's not about making the million dollars. It's about what person you become if you make a million dollars. Yeah. Like to become that person, you have to change for the better. Uh, you're successful in some particular way. Just being given the lottery ticket, you didn't have to earn it. You didn't change in any way, and that's not nearly as rewarding. Yeah, I love that. It says, like you said, it's not the money you make; it's the person you became to make that money. Right. That's the reward. Right. That's right. actually an Ayn Rand quote, probably. Probably. Yeah. Uh. Uh. Yes, because uh, I know Ayn Rand. Uh, money creates some sort of freedom. Sure. Um, and it is a measure of a scoreboard. But if you're born on third base, um. You shouldn't be proud of that. You should. Yeah. I I don't know if I've told you my philosophy, but uh, um, in general, the way I rationalize uh, the privilege that we get just by being born in our circumstances, America or in a a son of a doctor, um, you can make yourself feel bad because there's other people in the world that do not have all the resources you have. Uh, But then you'll go crazy because there's just too many people, right? So what I think uh, is the best moral philosophy is just play the best poker hand you can. You owe it to everyone that you got a very good hand of cards. Play them well. Try and produce more than you consume. So if you got dealt a hand that doesn't have any pairs, okay, but like do the best you can there. Yeah. Um, the It's not okay to play it terribly. Just like throw all the, way, throw all the resources you have away. Think this was all built for you. You should do something with it. Just walking away. I don't know. I'm not a fan of that. So I totally agree with you. Play the hand you're dealt and like, this sounds corny, but like try to leave the world a better place yep. than when you came into it. Yep. And, and just trying to do that. Yeah. We can't all do it. Hopefully for the ones that it doesn't work out, bad luck. The good luck outweighs that. And overall, we're still progressing uh, as a society. And also to add to that point, whatever hand you're dealt, the hand's going to look much different at the end of your life. Yeah. You can have true. a royal flush when you're born. And die with nothing or the complete opposite. Right, right. But I think it's a good point. Like, basically, like living in America, like, you have that opportunity to build something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's tough. Like everyone else is trying to build something, too. Oh, my so, gosh, so, yeah. Uh, the competition, you, other people are trying to break into businesses. Uh, I, not, how's your startup going? You, you, how long is this? Uh, Just under two years. Two years? Okay. Yeah. So it's not a startup. It, it is a previous purchase of another business. Okay. But the other business was on a steep decline so it's as close to a startup as you can get without being a startup got it good location though good uh, location yeah so it worked out good so we're actually we're coming up in the hour mark sure and i always ask one question at the end okay what is one takeaway you want the listeners to get from this podcast when they think about this that's your advice to them from this podcast yeah wow you could have prepped me for uh, i know i should have <laughs> i usually <I> do <laughs> i'm not gonna sound wise after this <laughs> Um, so my takeaway is that, uh, as, as a purchaser of any sort of product, the good companies are trying to build products that customers want. So tell us what you want. We are listening and we do want to make that happen for you. Um, we, I want everyone to live the best life possible. I'm trying to actualize my dreams, my life, uh, so I can go do things, be as free as possible. 
the car companies are trying to do that too. We put all these features in there so you can have all the capability you can to live the best life possible. Why? Because happy people are great billboards for our products, but happy people are great customers. They make great families. Uh, we want everybody to be living their best life. So whatever you want, make sure you tell us. There's people who want to make that happen for you. That's such good advice. Basically, like, listen to your customers because they're not going to lie to you. If they're going to give you money, you have to actually have what they want. Yeah, I'm always astounded by how insightful our customers are. When they can just pinpoint the things that they love and don't love. A car is a big purchase. It's one of the three biggest purchases you make. Yeah. Um, but they, they can just go through every little thing. And it's like, oh, yep, I'm taking them very literally here that they hate that. And I, I want to make that go away. I can't fix every problem, but I want to fix their problem. Yeah. Like I got to meet that person. So uh, I know I care. Um, I know uh, you care. I really do. Uh, and so um, I just want people to tell me. And then if uh, it's okay, it's okay to complain. It's okay yeah. to tell the truth. Tell us, tell us the truth directly and we'll try and fix it for you. That's awesome. I can't thank you enough for being on this podcast. I'm a little bit sad that I think we haven't talked in what two years. I know it, it has been too long because you and I used to have these conversations all the time. All the time, because I got bad teeth, and so I get to see Vince all the time. Yeah, and I'm stupid. I get to see Ryan all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're gonna sign off. But one last question: Can I have you back on? Yeah, when? Uh, yeah, I'll be back probably uh, Q4. So October, I'll I'll be more free. Okay, dentists don't know what Q4 means. That means September. Uh, October, November, December. Okay, yeah, last quarter. Okay, all right. Well, signing off, and thanks again, Ryan. Thanks a lot, Dr. Vince. Well, there you have it. Another great episode of Toothpaste, the podcast, the other side of dentistry. Please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please reach out to us on Instagram at Toothpaste Podcast or email us at toothpastepodcast at gmail.com.